0: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dino dig.
1: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms. And producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in
0: America.
2: One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car... Use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on Auto Trader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> Auto Trader.
0: Hello and welcome to I know Dino. I'm Garrett.
3: And I'm Sabrina.
0: This week we have an interview with Dr. Matthew Lamana. We have Dinosaur of the Day Appalachiosaurus. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. And as always, we would like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons. This week, we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, and Rohan. Thank you guys so much. And our apologies to Rohan. They actually became a Stegosaurus patron weeks ago, and I just totally failed at thanking them. So, thank you Rohan and thank you to all of our patrons.
3: Yay, thank you so much. We really appreciate all of you. And if you'd like to join this group, the Stegosaurus patrons or any of our other groups on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com/inodino.
0: Jumping right into the news, we have a new dinosaur from France which was published in Nature's Scientific Reports by Pascal Godefroy and others. And thanks to Damien for sharing this with us on Facebook. This is a rhabdodontid, which is a bipedal herbivore similar to iguanodonts, which you're probably more familiar with. And this one was found in southern France in an area called Provence, which is on the coast, on the Mediterranean Sea. And its full name is Matherodon provincialis. And Matherodon is a name that comes from two Latin words. Well, one of them is really French. So (laughs) the Matheron part is in honor of Philippe Matheron, who was, quote, the first to describe dinosaur remains in province, end quote. And the Don part comes from the Greek for tooth, which we see in other kinds of dinosaurs too. And a bonus fun fact Matheron, also named Rhabdodon, which is the the species responsible for the group Rhabdodontid.
3: It's all connected. Yep.
0: (laughs) And Provincialis is the Latinized version of Provence or some such version of the southern part of France. (laughs) Good effort. (laughs) Thanks. So all they found of this dinosaur is a right maxilla and some teeth. And the maxilla, again, is kind of like the jaw. But interestingly, the teeth and jaw are much larger than expected for this type of dinosaur. So it's like a lot more robust than you'd expect. And the teeth were about two inches by two inches, which is pretty huge for an herbivore. Usually you see those dental batteries with lots of little tiny teeth, especially for these Cretaceous dinosaurs. And this one's from about 75 million years ago, so it's late Cretaceous. They think that the teeth probably worked like scissors, they had really thick enamel on one side of the tooth and they believe that they lined up with teeth above them and then they kind of sheared when they bit rather than grinding, like you see in a lot of other late Cretaceous herbivores. And because they had this strong scissor shearing force, they might have been able to eat tough fibers like palm and other really tough plants that other dinosaurs might not have been able to eat. So it would have given it a little bit of an advantage. And it wouldn't have been that big. They estimate that it was about five meters long, and it's really hard to estimate for something like a jawbone. So if you translate that to feet, it's about 16 feet. But I think since they said five meters, they're probably thinking, you know, closer to five meters than seven meters. You know, it's probably like five meters plus or minus a meter. So really, we don't know too much about how big it was. Big. Yeah. But it did have really interesting teeth, those shearing teeth would have made for a unique dinosaur.
3: Yes, definitely made all the headlines.
0: Yeah, and there's some funny pictures of it too. A lot of them were calling it an ugly dinosaur, which is kind of (laughs) harsh. It is
3: pretty harsh.
0: But they depict it as having kind of a beak in the front and then teeth only in the back part of the mouth. And then since it has so few teeth, it does look a little bit weird. But you know, there are a lot of other dinosaurs that had partial beaks and things. So I don't know why they're picking on this guy.
3: Next, we have a quick update to Dinosaur Isle. So a few weeks back, Jeremy Lockwood, the chair of the Friends of Dinosaur Isle Museum, shared an update about Dinosaur Isle. And the Isle of White Council held a soft market test event meeting, which was apparently packed with supporters of the museum. Council Officer Ashley Curzon said that no matter what, they would guarantee the continued accreditation status of the museum. So that's good news. And there were talks about businesses that could be mutually beneficial to the museum. So the next step is to get funding to build a visitor center and get more visitors to the museum. And Jeremy said, quote, the meeting I felt was going in the right direction, but we still have a long way to go and still rely heavily on the support of the community to ensure that the museum and its unique collection remains safe. The key to the success of the Bay remains in valuing what we've got and working together, end quote.
0: So I guess he's talking about the whole area not just the museum.
3: I think the focus is on the museum, and it sounds like they're not planning on getting rid of it anytime soon, so that's good. Cool. Yeah. Cosi Columbus, the science museum in Columbus, Ohio, released a time-lapse video that showed the preparation of a T-Rex, which is part of a new exhibit there called Dinosaurs Among Us, and that's opening November 18th. The T-Rex is 40 feet long, but it only took two days to put together. The skeleton's comprised of pieces of a resin cast that's attached to a steel frame, And the exhibit will also have a life-size stegosaurus and a large diorama. And this exhibit's part of a partnership with the American Museum of Natural History, and it's going to be a permanent part of the museum. So that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. There's some cool museums between Ohio and Indiana.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. And I was also thinking uh, interesting partnerships with the American Museum of Natural History. Yeah. Yeah. Next, Big Bend National Park in Texas now has some dinosaurs on display in their fossil discovery exhibit. There's a large bronze T-Rex skull, as well as some non-dinosaurs, like a really big Quetzalcoatlus with a 35-foot wingspan, which looks pretty impressive in the pictures, and we've heard good things. Then the Big Bend Conservancy raised over $1.5 million to support constructing this exhibit. There's no fee to see it. Just the fee to get into Big Bend National Park, and that costs $25 per vehicle or $12 per individual.
0: Yeah, we thought about going there when we were in West Texas recently, but it didn't look like it was worth going as far out of your way as you have to go to get to Big Bend National Park just for that. But if you were in the park, it would definitely be worth checking out.
3: Yeah. For us, it was a two-hour drive out of the way. Yeah. And, difficult
0: and it is all replicas and things that i don't think were necessarily from big ben park because they have a t-rex skull which is kind of weird for texas <laughs> but <laughs> that's what the people want so i guess they picked that yeah i think they also had a giant like Sucomimus or one of those big alligator things
3: yes i saw a picture of that and there's a lot of fossils from the area because the whole idea is to teach you about what lived in that area
0: plus the obligatory t-rex yeah <laughs>
3: Well, that one's a bronze skull. Yeah. It's different.
0: <laughs> it's all kind of outdoor too, isn't it? It looked like yeah.
3: it. And they mentioned, uh, I think there's bathrooms, but no places to buy food or water. <laughs> I can't remember the details.
0: Get that Texas experience. Rough it. <laughs>
3: <laughs> next, there might be a two-part feature film about the life of Mary Anning, which if it happens, it'll be coming out next summer. And it's being filmed on location in Lyme Regis right now. And it stars Jenny Agutter. Hopefully I pronounced that right. And she's in the movies of The Avengers, An American Werewolf in London, and Call the Midwife. So, pretty big name. And Sharon Sheehan is directing. And she said that she was inspired by her visits to Lyme as a child and started researching Anning back in 2000. They still need funding to finish the first film. And the first film is going to be about... Mary's childhood and discovery of the ichthyosaur, and then the second film will show her adult wife and when she discovers the plesiosaur and pterodactyl, but that still needs a lot more funding. The good news is Regis Town Council's tourism and publicity committee approved a request for 5,000 pounds for the film, and hopefully they'll get the rest that they need, but they do need 10,000 more pounds for the first film and 100,000 pounds for the second film, so they've still got a ways to go. But Sharon said, quote, we want to champion Mary Anning together with Dorset's spectacular scenery as the backdrop. It is hoped that the film will bring to Dorset what Poldark has brought to Cornwall in tourism and business and will finally put Mary on the map as the most prominent paleontologists of all time, End quote.
0: It's weird that they think the first film will cost 15,000 pounds and the second will cost 100,000.
3: I think that's 15,000 more pounds. They've already raised some funding and then they haven't done any funding for the second film. Uh,
0: okay. And I also wonder what Poldark is, which apparently made Cornwall a popular destination.
3: So Poldark is a BBC series.
0: Oh, cool. should watch it.
3: And it's a historical drama. Maybe not, then. I don't know all the details.
0: (laughs) I guess this would probably be a historical drama, too.
3: Yeah. Speaking of shows, though, this one's definitely not historical drama, (laughs) but it's a new Hulu show called Marvel's Runaways, and they recently released a teaser trailer, and this show... You may guess it's a Marvel show. So it brings to life the comic that was published in 2003. And in this show, a group of teens have powers and their parents are supervillains. The trailer shows a velociraptor, which will apparently be an important part of the show. I'm not familiar with the comics. And the first three episodes will be available on November 21st.
0: Maybe that'll be a comic book show that I'll enjoy. It's got velociraptor in it.
3: If it has enough Velociraptor in it.
0: Did it look like a Velociraptor Velociraptor or a Jurassic Park Velociraptor?
3: Jurassic Park. Ah, Marvel. But from what I've read, it sounds like it'll be an important part of the show. Okay. So who knows?
0: Is it going to talk?
3: Didn't talk in the trailer.
0: Hmm. I'm just trying to imagine how you integrate a dinosaur into a bunch of teenagers.
3: <laughs> read the comic and tell I me. so. We often talk about stories of people who are dressing up in inflatable T-Rex costumes. And this latest one involves a whole family. There was four people that dressed up as a T-Rex. And they waited for one young girl to get off the school bus. I'm guessing the girl was part of the family. And there's a video that shows them bouncing up and down in anticipation. And then they chase her around a bit once she's off the bus.
0: (laughs) So they didn't dress up as one T-Rex. They all dressed up individually as yes, T-Rexes? Yes, there are
3: four T-Rexes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good catch. <laughs> we also have some other inflatable T-Rex costume stories. So thanks to Daniel, who shared this one with us via Facebook, Nashville had a bunch of runners in these costumes, and they ran in downtown Nashville at the end of October for their second year of what's called the T-Rex Stampede. <laughs> And apparently it started as a joke on social media and then it turned into an actual race. So in a short video, you can see the group jogging on a bridge and across traffic. And it's pretty funny to see the T-Rex heads bobbing while they're jogging because, you know, your actual head is uh, below in the neck of the T-Rex in that costume.
0: Yeah, they're really hard to move in, though, because what happens is... It's constantly being inflated by a fan, and the more you move, the more air it puffs out. Mm -hmm. So it starts to deflate around you if you (laughs) move too much, and then the head gets real floppy.
3: They don't look like they're running that fast. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say in the video, but yeah.
0: I was wearing a Halloween costume T-Rex, but one just around my waist. It like stuck out in front of me like I, it was it makes it look like you're pretending to ride the T-Rex mm-hmm. and just walking with my trick-or-treating family. It started to deflate a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but it's worth it.
3: Yep. Would it have been worth it in the other T-Rex costume?
0: Maybe. I don't know. The one problem was I was in Minnesota and it was cold and it was like blowing a lot of cold air on me constantly, which was a little unpleasant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's not great. yeah. Got to represent the dinosaurs.
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's what's important. Yeah. Speaking of representing dinosaurs, I got one more for you. So in Denver, airport workers dressed up in an inflatable T-Rex costumes for Halloween. And I realize we're talking about this several weeks after Halloween. But we had to record a couple episodes before Halloween early. So we are catching up now. <laughs> so there's a video of this one. It shows a group of... Four people in the T-Rex costume coming out of an elevator. And then there's six of them wind up on the tarmac. And then a few of them are loading and unloading luggage. And they also walked around the terminal taking pictures with people and giving high fives. So it was like a fun day in the Denver airport.
0: I wonder if they wore that all day. I know. No, that crazy. would be
3: difficult. seems like it would be hard to load and unload luggage.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Plus, I don't know how long the batteries lasted those costumes. You probably have to go through quite a few. Mm,
3: could be. I lied, I've got one more T-Rex costume story. (laughs) So this is the last one. In Soho in New York, Joe Jonas from the Jonas Brothers and two of his friends, they all each dressed up in an inflatable T-Rex costume. And then they did karaoke and danced at the Handy Liquor Bar. This was a few weekends ago.
0: Interesting. Mm -hmm. I feel like Joe Jonas is the name I would make up if I was like the Jonas brothers. You know, you got Joe, (laughs) (laughs) Joseph,
3: (laughs) Jerry. Yeah. Another one. (laughs) And last in the news, in Jackson, Wisconsin, Landscapes had nine dinosaur statues built out of straw bales, and they made a T Rex, Brachiosaurus, Triceratops, and Stegosaurus as well as a few others, and each dinosaur weighed at least a couple hundred pounds, and some apparently weighed more than a thousand pounds. Hmm.
0: Yeah, straw's kind of heavy.
3: Yeah, I guess, and if you're making it to scale.
0: Oh, they were that big? That's cool.
3: Mm-hmm. The dinosaurs were part of this, what they call the Pumpkins in the Pines program, and it's all about teaching young kids about the harvest season, which is why they make know, straw bales, and they have a different theme every year.
0: Nice. I used to go see straw sculptures when I was a kid in Wisconsin. Huh. Go through a corn maze
3: guess that's a thing. Yeah. I wouldn't know growing up in California.
0: You go on a haunted hayride. Those are pretty great.
3: Uh, yeah, I've heard. <laughs> I don't think I've ever... Nope. The most straw I've seen was when we were driving through Kansas.
0: Huh. You're missing out.
3: <laughs> Could be. Could be. <laughs> oh, maybe at the state fairs or the county fairs. They might have had some, but I can't remember. Certainly no dinosaur straws.
0: Yeah. I don't remember seeing that either. That's pretty unique. Yeah. And now we're going to go on to our interview with Matthew Lamana.
3: This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th, or from July 22nd to August
3: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu dinodig you'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash D-I-N-O-D-I-G. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. We're joined today with Matt Lamana, who is the assistant curator at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And his research focuses on Cretaceous dinosaurs of the Southern Hemisphere with field research in Antarctica, Australia, Argentina, and Egypt. And he also focuses on the Mesozoic evolution of birds. So we met Matt at SVP and we got to see a poster about excavating in Antarctica. So of course we had to follow up.
0: Yeah. Not a lot of people talk about Antarctica dinosaurs, except for penguins. But, you know, the <laughs> old dinosaurs.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it's it's true that very few people talk about Antarctic uh, non-avian dinosaurs. And that's because, uh, you know, first and foremost, there just aren't very many fossils of them, um, which is simultaneously why it makes it so exciting to go there.
0: Yeah, cool. So I, w- I was kind of wondering about Antarctica and trying to excavate there. And is there like a lot of exposed rock where you can find fossils or is it mostly covered in ice and therefore pretty much impossible on most of Antarctica?
1: The latter. So far less than 1% of Antarctica uh, is exposed rock. So more than 99% <laughs> of Antarctica is is covered in ice year round. Um, you know, sadly, I think that that's not always going to be the case, um, you know, if if climate continues the way it's going. Hmm. But but for the moment, at least, Antarctica—that's that, the situation in Antarctica. So my team and I are limited to um, to the less than one percent that is uh, partly exposed, uh, you know, some of the year. Um, so it really, it really helps uh, hone your search, I suppose. Yeah. You know, that's the the silver lining is is there's not an abundance of places to look. So uh, so you you rapidly eliminate lots and lots of areas of Antarctica and. Uh, but thankfully, part of that less than 1% contains rocks from the end of the age of dinosaurs that have fossils in them.
0: Nice. Yeah, that's a good coincidence.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I guess, uh, you know, when you've got a, a land area, you know, again, covered mostly in ice, but a land area that's, that's larger than the continental U.S., I mean, even less than 1% of that is still a substantial amount of land. That's yeah. a
0: good point. So you might still have, like, the area of Maine or something exposed, <laughs> even though it's a relatively small amount.
1: Yeah, off the top of my head, I don't know how it compares to, like, say, a given U.S. state, but certainly it's a, Antarctica is a big place, you know, newsflash. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and, and therefore, uh, you know, having even less than 1% of it um, exposed and available for paleontologists to hunt for fossils in is still a fair bit of land.
3: Yeah. So where exactly in Antarctica is that 1%? Uh,
1: well, it's scattered throughout the continent in various places. Uh, the place that we look for fossils uh, on is in what's called the James Ross Basin of the Antarctic Peninsula. And so this is... a. Depositional basin that uh, where rocks are, from the end of the age of dinosaurs are exposed. It's off the northeastern tip of the Antarctic Peninsula, and the Antarctic Peninsula is that sort of prong of Antarctica that sticks north towards South America. So, um, so the, the the northernmost part of the southernmost continent. You can think of it like uh, you know as close to Antarctica gets as being tropical, <laughs> <laughs> which is not very. <laughs>
0: So, what kind of time frame can you go there for research?
1: We go at the in the austral summer. Um, the prime time is probably January, and I know that sounds really bizarre, <laughs> but. That's, that's because the seasons are switched because it's in the Southern Hemisphere. So January in Antarctica is as warm as it ever gets there. <laughs> um, and so we, um, January is the prime time. We typically have gone um, in February and March just due to like scheduling things. And uh, also because February is sort of the, you know, the equivalent of August in the Northern Hemisphere. It's, mm. um, it's late summer. And so that's the time when sea ice tends to be at, at its minimum. So, um, you know, by the time February rolls around, a lot of the ice that's covering the ocean has has melted by that point. And that's very important for us because um, one of the biggest obstacles to getting on the islands where rocks from the James Ross Basin are exposed is sea ice. Um, sea ice is, is just ice that forms over ocean water. And it, it doesn't maybe sound like it'd be that big of a deal, but we're not allowed to walk over it. Hmm. so we need to find areas to get on the islands where we where we want to go. We either need to fly over the sea ice um, you know with helicopters which we don't always have or we need to find channels of open water between our big research vessel, our big ship that takes us down there. And the islands themselves um, that we can take little, you know, sort of little inflatable Zodiac boats to reach. Without helicopters, sea ice can be a huge problem for us. So we do everything we can to to be down there when it's at its minimum. And that's typically at the end of the austral summer in February and March.
3: Is it because the sea ice is dangerous to walk on? That's yeah, kind
1: of... exactly. Yeah. Now, um, <laughs> I, I don't know off the top of my head how thick it is, but I, I think it's between, you know, it's on the order of a couple of feet thick. I mean, you probably could walk over it without much problem. Nevertheless, and very understandably, the, you know, the U.S. Antarctic Program, the government agency that, that runs Antarctic field work doesn't want to take the chance of somebody falling through and, and, and ending up in that water mm-hmm. where you have about seven minutes to live in the best case scenario. It's, <laughs> it's it's, needless to say, super, super cold and you don't last very long in it. So they do everything they can to, to make sure you don't fall in.
0: Cool. I don't think the British government is as concerned because I think on planet Earth 2, they were shooting penguins on it. <laughs> and they, yeah. were, they were talking about like, if that mountain starts to look farther away, that means that we're drifting out into the okay.
1: ocean. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think different different Antarctic programs may have different policies towards it, but, um, but we are, uh, at least thus far, have been forbidden from setting foot on it. So um, yeah, and you know, I mean, it's frustrating sometimes. In the 2009 field season, for instance, um, we got to within, you know, somebody that could drive a golf ball pretty far could have hit Vega. Island, one of the islands that we wanted to go uh, from the ship we were on, but we couldn't get there because there was you know, basically continuous sea ice between us and Vega. So we stared forlornly at Vega <laughs> out of the portals of the ship for weeks on end um, and uh, did finally make it to a, a different island in the basin, an island called James Ross Island. But, um, but that was... We let's just say that we learned our lesson with regard to sea ice, uh, and that's that season in 2009 is the primary reason why we go so late in the austral summer now. Mm-hmm. Um, that year, we were there in November and December, sort of the you know late spring in Antarctica or earliest summer, and um, and there was so much sea ice that we couldn't do much of anything.
0: Gotcha. And then, how long can you stay after you get there?
1: The longest field season we've had total has been about uh, eight weeks, uh, counting preparation in Chile um, and transit to Antarctica. But typically, they're a little shorter than that. You can, you know, theoretically, you can stay there as long as, as you have permission to stay, but, um, you know, living outside in that kind of weather, uh, for weeks on end takes its toll on anybody. And so, you know, after a few weeks, most people are sad to go, but, but, you know, but ready to to go home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we also have the benefit and this is, this is actually living large in terms of, uh, and in terms of how field work goes, the ship is sometimes parked near, um, the islands that we're prospecting on and, you know, and, and camping on, so you know if it gets too ridiculous, we can sometimes pop over to the ship for a hot shower or you know uh, spend a night in a bed, something like that. So you know by fieldwork standards, it's it's actually pretty cushy that way. It's great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. What's the, What's the weather like in Antarctica in January and February?
1: Well, so in our area, uh, on the Antarctic Peninsula, on these these islands of the James Ross Basin, um, primarily Vega Island, but also James Ross Island and Seymour Island, the weather is – so I, li- I live in Pittsburgh now and I'm from upstate New York. It's actually not unlike – Winters in Western Pennsylvania or upstate New York. It's some. Hmm. Um, it's not nearly as cold as people think. Um, temperature isn't really our biggest enemy there. It's um, I would say an average would be maybe a low of about 20 and and Fahrenheit and a high of about 40 Fahrenheit. So so substantially warmer, I think, than most people uh, would expect. That being said, it gets much colder than that sometimes, and it also occasionally gets gets quite a bit warmer. I remember uh, one a uh, couple days stretch in the 2016 season in particular where, you know, we by default have thermal underwear on, and so you start off with that on during your day, and and you just you know you you pile on clothes from there. Uh, this one day, we were digging up a plesiosaur, which is a, a marine reptile, an extinct marine reptile um, pelvis. And I remember um, having to dig this thing out of permafrost on a 55 degree day, and um, <laughs> let's just say, I mean, I I was down to my thermal top and my my uh, sort of carhart <laughs> pants, and I couldn't go any any further than that for uh, you know for the sake of all the other team members. <laughs> I definitely wanted to. It um, it was pretty pretty hot and sweaty that day. So um, you know, so the the temperature varies quite a bit. Now I mentioned that temperature is not our biggest enemy. There, um, our biggest enemy is wind by far. Hmm. So where it's not like an upstate new york winter or a western pennsylvania winter is is in terms of the wind um it's not always windy um sometimes it's calm and peaceful and beautiful but when it's windy it can be really windy like literally um knock you over type uh type wind um you know probably upwards of 50 mile per hour sustained and sometimes gusts even higher than that Uh, it can be pretty ridiculous yeah we definitely have had experiences where we've been caught in that. Um, we've had it, it sometimes will do that at night while you're sleeping and that or trying to sleep, I guess, as the wind's howling. <laughs> you know, so the the wind is our, our biggest enemy there, um, along with the fact that the temperature hovers around freezing. So during the day, it gets warm enough for the snow and ice to melt sometimes or partly melt. But at night, it gets cold enough for it to freeze. And if you happen to have had the misfortune of, you know, stepping in a puddle or something like that. <laughs> you have the joyous experience of putting on frozen boots in the morning, mm. which is really, really wonderful. <laughs> Just the best. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so the, it, again, it could be, a, it, we're thankful for how warm it is uh, there in our field area, but um, it also, it, it, the wind and also the fact that it hovers around freezing can be problematic.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. How many times have you gone
1: uh, I have been there three times, so two thousand nine, two thousand eleven, and two thousand sixteen.
0: Cool, and then I think you mentioned something about penguins. And is there any other wildlife that you have to kind of avoid? <laughs>
1: um, well, we do. You know, we do have to avoid the wildlife, but it's actually not because, in most cases, it's not because it's dangerous. Um, <laughs> We're supposed to avoid the wildlife due to the stipulations of the Antarctic Treaty that I think every country that works in Antarctica has, you know, is a part of. Antarctica is really great that way. It's sort of this, um, for the few people that are down there, it's a land where, you know, where different people from different nations cooperate really routinely. I think you, um, it's a real sort of testament to. You know how a harsh environment can make people put aside any differences <laughs> they might have. Um, it's actually real in in a way. It's sort of like a little uh, little utopia down there that way, and that people everybody gets along with each other. But um, but that that was a little bit of a tangent. Um, so the wildlife there uh we you know we're not supposed to approach them you know we're not supposed to obviously not supposed to go up and touch them or pick them up or <laughs> anything like that and we don't but sometimes the wildlife, because they've seen so few humans or maybe no humans ever, uh, sometimes the wildlife comes to you. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes you'll be you know say um you know looking for fossils and all of a sudden you'll hear a squawk off in the distance and you have a little penguin toddling towards you. <laughs> You know, as if like, you know, like, oh, look, you know, you're like a really big, weird looking penguin. I want to come over and say hi. You know, (laughs) Um, we've actually had that happen a few times. We've had skuas, which are a bird. um, They're related distantly, I think, to seagulls and things like that. But they have sort of, um, they fill kind of the, um, almost the bird of prey niche in Antarctica. So imagine sort of a seagull trying to be a hawk, maybe something like that.
3: Um,
1: I know, it sounds sounds, sounds like a lot of people's worst nightmare. Um, They, um, they are very curious about us. And so, um, and they're also very defensive of their nests. So um, if we happen to be, you know, again, prospecting for fossils, oftentimes your heads, you know, your eyes are on the ground, you've got your, you know, your uh, iPhone or iPod or something playing music, and you're not really paying attention. These guys can kind of dive bomb you. And it's a little bit scary. <laughs> um, the scariest is when, and this might be too, inf- too much information, I hope not. But um <laughs> when you you have to go to the bathroom, we have to go down to the, um, we're required to go into the surf um, when we do that. Huh. And um, sometimes you'll have your mind on other things, let's just say, and a school will come down and sort of dive bomb your head. <laughs> oh, um no. <laughs> this can make, make going to the bathroom a, a little bit challenging sometimes. Um, we also have, occasionally we encounter leopard seals. Um, these are something to be wary of, they have killed people before, very, very rarely, but they have. Um, they're in a, a very large, powerful predatory seal. They're basically the top predator in the Antarctic environment, with the exception of fully marine things like orcas and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. These guys can get out onto land. They don't do it very much. Um, we, When we see them, we typically are going by them in a boat, and they sort of look at us like, you know, what the hell are you? <laughs> um, <laughs> But, um, but one time uh, in 2009, we were in uh, uh, the South Shetland Islands, which is north of the Antarctic Peninsula. We had been um, uh, basically pushed out of there by all the sea ice in, the, in our desired field area. So we decided to go to Plan B and go to the South Shetlands. And we were taking a Zodiac, one of these little inflatable boats, from the, the big ship, the Lawrence M. Gould in that case, to, um, to one of the islands. I think it might have been Livingston Island. And anyway, I... Um, there were a lot of baby elephant seals in this area, and baby elephant seals are are small and adorable. They and they actually look almost nothing like their grown-up counterparts, which are <laughs> and, and sort of homely. Um, uh, but anyway, so this this round-headed seal or sort of um, oval-headed seal kept popping its head out of the water behind the zodiac. And, um, you know, and I looked at this and, you know, it popped its head up and, and we'd keep going and, you know, and, and it would clearly keep going and pop its head up again. And it kept getting sort of closer and closer as, as, as the journey went on. And finally, it dawned on me that the shape of the head was not the same as that of a baby elephant seal. And Uh-oh. this thought started to form in my head of, you know, could this be what I think it is? And so I turned to the, um, the marine technician. So one of the logistics people that was driving the Zodiac, and I said, is that what I think it is? And he turns to me and he goes, yeah, it is. And I said, are we in danger? And he said, not unless you want to go for a swim. <laughs> um, Antarctica, so I didn't. Um, this was a leopard seal. It was a young one, but it was a, a leopard seal nonetheless. And it was following the Zodiac um, and followed us all the way to shore. And so we had to get out of the Zodiac with this with this um, leopard seal sort of swimming back and forth behind the Zodiac. And I swear to God, that thing had no interest in us whatsoever really the demeanor of it was very much like you know when you've got like say a young golden retriever puppy or something and you're like throwing a frisbee to it i mean it really was very interested in the boat i think it thought (laughs) of it as giant chew toy or something like that (laughs) not at all interested in us which was a relief but that was a that was a you know an experience that of course I'll never forget I mean something that you know when you've got the largest terrestrial or semi-terrestrial predator on the entire continent you know within a few feet of you you definitely are you know paying attention Um, (laughs) even if again it is a fairly young one and it's mostly interested in in uh, in the zodiac rather than yourself so yeah yeah but yeah, we we have all kinds of stories like that of of you know sort of close encounters with wildlife that are not of our own doing. <laughs> They're, um, you know, again, because the wildlife is is in most cases very unfamiliar with humans and doesn't you know really know what we are, and as most cases you know has not learned through bitter experience or through um, you know the experience of its ancestors to fear humans. You know, we have a lot of animals approach us and, you know, and that can makes for for interesting times. <laughs> Sounds funny. like
3: it, yeah. <laughs> what got you interested in Antarctica?
1: Well, so I've always been interested in in working there. I mean, ever since, you know, ever since I heard that there were, you know, the, the people that people had occasionally found dinosaurs there. Um, just as a little bit of backstory, I'm one of the kids that, you know, you've probably met lots of us. Um, you may even be this yourselves. Um, I was one of those kids that, you know, that grew up always wanting to be a paleontologist. Um, my mom says I told her I was going to be a paleontologist when I was four. And so, <laughs> The first dinosaur found in Antarctica was found in 1986, um, at least published in 1986, I think. By an Argentine geologist named Eduardo Olivero um, in our field area, or what's now our field area of the um, of the James Ross Base in the Antarctic Peninsula, I think I read about this in when I was 11 years old in Discover magazine. There's um this very very um, I still have this the, my copy of this believe it or not on my office bookshelf. But um in like 1986 or 1987, so when I was you know 11 ish years old, mm-hmm. uh, this issue of Discover came out that it had a big dinosaur on the front, a, a duckbill dinosaur in particular, and it was all about sort of new dinosaur discoveries. And one of the facets of that article was something to the effect of, you know, brand new dinosaur species, you know, dinosaurs you've never heard of, something like that. And uh, on this page was a dinosaur called Carnotaurus from South America that is sort of emblematic of the weirdness of Southern Hemisphere dinosaurs. <laughs> You, I'm sure you're familiar with this animal. It looks sort of like uh, if you take a T-Rex and run it into a you know say a, a sliding glass door or something like that. <laughs> smash in the face, um, you know, take the the notoriously puny arms of T-Rex and shrink them even further, <laughs> and then add, add a couple of, of uh, big big you know prominent uh, big prominent horns on the head. And that's Carnotaurus. <laughs> I mean, this was this was an animal that to my 11-year-old eyes looked like an alien. Um, you know, I thought. Mm. Uh, I thought I knew everything there was to know about dinosaurs at age 11. And, you know, this, this magazine, this issue of this magazine opened that, that world up to me that there were entire lost worlds of dinosaurs out there that, that paleontologists knew very little about. Um, on that same sort of double page spread with Carnotaurus was a little sort of nondescript looking armored dinosaur, an ankylosaur. But the, the caption is what was interesting. It's, it described it as, you know, the first dinosaur that had been found from Antarctica. So back at that early age in the mid-1980s, I was aware that there were dinosaurs from Antarctica. And, and so I was, you know, ever since I learned that, I, you know, kind of fantasized about, you know, maybe someday getting together and, and, dis, and you know, discovering them for myself. Mm-hmm. But um, that dream became a reality in 2009. Um, I got an email out of the blue from a colleague I honestly barely knew at the time, um, uh, a guy named Ross McPhee, the curator of mammals at the American Museum of Natural History. And um, Ross was sort of a close colleague of my boss at the time, a primate paleontologist named Chris Beard. Uh, I guess we're, we're all primate paleontologists. <laughs> Chris, Chris. <laughs> Um, to clarify. Um, but <laughs> Ross had contacted Chris and said, uh, basically, I have this grant to go to Antarctica and um, I have spots open on my field team. Do you know of anybody that might be suitable and interested? And Chris, thankfully for me, recommended me. Um, and so I got a random email from Ross that said, basically something to the effect of, if you want to go to Antarctica in three months, you can go. <laughs> <laughs> And um, you know I after I probably picked my jaw up off the desk or floor or whatever <laughs> wherever it had dropped to, uh, I wrote back to him to Ross and basically said um I don't know if I said you know like right away I was in but i you know i I said something to the effect of sounds really interesting, tell me more and
3: you know and, <laughs> playing and, it cool uh, exactly <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, not trying to sound too too over enthusiastic, I guess, but <laughs> But uh, yeah, so three months later in, in November of 2009, I found myself on a flight to Chile for, um, you know, for my departure to Antarctica even cooler than that, uh, Ross had other spots on his team that weren't filled either. And, um, you know, since time was short and it takes a lot of time to prepare for an Antarctic expedition, you have to go through uh, medical exams because they want to make sure you're not going to, you know, say have a heart attack on the ice or something like that because mm-hmm. the evacuation it's, it's not because they, they love you. It's because <laughs> the evacuation costs are so tremendous that they only want to send <laughs> you know relatively healthy people down there that have a relatively low risk of having a serious medical emergency and requiring evacuation. So Ross still had other slots on his team open too, and um he basically let me fill them with two of my sort of uh, longstanding partners in crime and paleontology, a guy named Steve Salisbury at the University of Queensland in Australia, um, who's one of my best friends in, in the business and indeed in the world, um, and another guy named Pat O'Connor from Ohio University, who was uh, at that point not, I wasn't quite as close with Pat as I, as I was with Steve, but very rapidly the three of us became, you know, um, basically friends for life and we continue to work together uh, to this day and both of those guys were ideal choices because like me they were fascinated with dinosaurs from the southern hemisphere so steve naturally being australian um was one <laughs> of the pioneers of discoveries of, of australian dinosaurs in his um uh, adopted home state of queensland and Pat uh, is an authority on dinosaurs from Madagascar and Africa. So we had, um, and, and my experience was predominantly, although not exclusively, in South America. So we had, we had Antarctica surrounded, so to speak, <laughs> from, a, from a scientific expertise standpoint. So we had kind of the makings of an ideal, you know, dino-centric team to go down there. The other thing that was alluring to me about Antarctica is my other kind of side project, so to speak, um, got started when I was in grad school and just after grad school, uh, when I first came to the Carnegie Museum, I teamed up with my old friend Hailu Yu, um, who's a paleontologist at the uh, Institute of Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing. Um, he and I, Hailu and I, went to grad school together at the University of Pennsylvania, and back then we, you know, we we liked each other. We liked hanging out with each other, so we decided we, you know, we wanted Wanted to work together. Um, Hailu had this really great um, site in northwestern China that he invited me to participate in basically and um, we had found some of the most, um, this sounds like an exaggeration to say this and hopefully it's not going to sound too, too arrogant or like I'm puffing <laughs> myself up, but, um, we found some of the most important fossil birds you know that still have been found to this day um, at this site that he he um, kind of introduced me to in northwestern china so that in the mid 2000s that got me interested in bird evolution so you know i'm i have long standing interest in southern hemisphere dinosaurs really dating back to that that discover magazine article when i was 11 <laughs> um, and in you know, late grad school and early um, Carnegie time, I suppose, I got interested in bird evolution as well. And Antarctica was the perfect nexus of both of those. It was the chunk of the Southern Hemisphere for which we knew almost nothing in terms of what, the dinos- what kinds of dinosaurs are living there. It's no exaggeration to say it's the final frontier for dinosaur paleontology as it is for a lot of other um, aspects of, of Earth exploration. But the other really, really interesting thing about Antarctica to me was that of the few fossils that had been found there from the end of the age of dinosaurs, many of them were those of fossil birds. And, um, and not just any fossil birds, fossil birds that seemed to be quite important. Um, so in the, in the 1990s, a pair of Argentine geologists found a couple of fossil birds from this island that we work on on now called Vega Island. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't really recognized for quite as, as interesting as they proved to be until the mid-2000s when my now collaborator, Julia Clark, described one of them as the type or, or name-bearing specimen of a new species that she called Vegavis ea. And um, the cool thing about Vegavis was, according to Julia's analysis, it was a member of a modern bird lineage. So um, so all 10,000 plus species of birds that we have around today belong to one single branch off the avian evolutionary tree that survived the, you know, the KPG, the massive mass extinction at the end of the Cretaceous. People had predicted based on on molecular analyses that that members of this group, the modern bird group called Neornithes, should be around during the age of dinosaurs. But to that point, no one had found a definitive member of the modern bird group from from the age of dinosaurs anywhere in the world. And so when Julia published her paper on Vegavis, her phylogenetic analysis her evolutionary analysis recovered this animal as a very close relative of modern ducks <laughs> in other words in other words a member of a modern avian lineage and therefore of this group that includes all 10,000 plus species of living birds this group called neornithes so this was this bird vegavis this you know unassuming little and honestly kind of a crappy fossil from vega <laughs> island <laughs> Uh, it proved to be and the first definitive evidence of any modern bird group from the entire age of dinosaurs anywhere in the world. So, if we're interested in how birds came to be, um, especially in the transition from things like, you know, toothy, long-tailed weirdos like Archaeopteryx, <laughs> to you know, to things like chickens, ducks, and ostriches, uh, Antarctica seemed like an incredible place to go. Um, in that, it had yielded, uh, as of the mid 2000s, the only definitive member of the of the modern bird group ever found anywhere in the world from the age of dinosaurs. And that's actually true to this day as well. There's, There are no other definitive neornithines from anywhere else in the world right now um, other than Vega Island um, and possibly Seymour Island in Antarctica.
3: Wow. I had no
1: yeah, idea. So, so, yeah, it's actually really interesting. It's, a, it's this really, really interesting kind of paradox, I suppose, that, um, you know, today Antarctica... It of course supports a diverse biota, but most mostly that's marine or living on the fringes of Antarctica. Things like seals and penguins. You know, almost nothing really makes it into the interior of Antarctica. In fact, virtually nothing does. You know, or, or at least in terms of like multicelled life, things like that. So the, there's a potential really interesting contrast here. So so far the only members of the, of the modern bird group that have ever been found anywhere in the world from the age of dinosaurs come from Antarctica. And there's actually more than one of them or seemingly more than one of them. So there, there seems to be multiple species of modern birds or, or things that are very close to modern birds down in Antarctica at the end of the age of dinosaurs. Uh, and interestingly, those, those animals aren't found elsewhere, including uh, you know, other Southern hemisphere land masses, such as, um, you know, such as in South America or Madagascar. So that sort of raises the question, you know, where there's smoke, could there potentially be fire? Um, <laughs> we have, we have you, know, a, a, you know, scattered fossils of modern birds from the Cretaceous in Antarctica could it just be that the modern bird group got their start down there in the you know in the far southern hemisphere towards the end of the age of dinosaurs? Mm-hmm. And that to me is a real paradox, a real contrast, a real curveball. In that today Antarctica is you know no offense to the seals and penguins, but Antarctica is a frozen wasteland where almost <laughs> no one lives. Um, so it really um, you know if this is true, if the idea that that modern birds got their start in Antarctica could be you know proven to be true. I think it would really cast Antarctica in a brand new light in terms of its significance for, you know, for for the history of life and ultimately for the origins of modern biotas, modern modern ecosystems.
0: Yeah. How what was the weather like <laughs> for lack of a better term back in the late Cretaceous in Antarctica? Was it still pretty cold?
1: That that's an excellent question to follow up with, and um, it was colder than most of the rest of the Mesozoic world, um, but uh, but certainly not nearly as cold as, as it is today. Mm-hmm. Um, all the fossil evidence that we have suggests that Antarctica was home to you know to a a diverse fauna, a diverse flora. Dozens of species of plants, um, in terms of of uh, pollen records and also um, fossil leaves and, and fossil wood, there's evidence for a, a huge diversity, a huge plant community down there uh, at the end of the age of dinosaurs. So plants being good indicators of of climate. Mm-hmm the climate seems to have been quite a bit warmer. That being said, um, it may, and this is relatively new research, but it may have been cold enough for sea ice to form during the winter, Hmm. potentially. So definitely not your steamy jungle environment that we <laughs> you know that we imagine you know you you often um you know so the american west during the age of dinosaurs um especially towards the end of the age of dinosaurs is often likened to places like the louisiana bayou or something mm-hmm, like you mm-hmm. know you have pictures of triceratops kind of walking through landscapes that that look not unlike modern louisiana things like that this was definitely not in that same class of of warmth it seems to have been quite a bit colder albeit much, much warmer than than today. Uh, the other interesting thing about, you know, Antarctica during the Age of Dinosaurs is that contrary to what most people might suspect, Antarctica was more or less in the same geographic position as it is today. So, mm. you know, so it was also very far south at that time and therefore would have experienced months of darkness on end oh, um, yeah. you know, during the winter and months of sunlight on end during the summer. And that sort of... The sort of warmer climate of Antarctica during the age of dinosaurs, coupled with the months of darkness, really leads to an, an, an interesting conclusion. And that's that the Antarctic environment at the end of the age of dinosaurs really has no direct modern analog. Let's say, you know, for the sake of argument that the temperature was something like, you know, Seattle or British Columbia, something like that. Imagine, you know, cast Seattle or Vancouver in four months of darkness every year. And you might have an idea as to, you know, as to what this was like. Hmm. Um, uh, An environment with no direct modern analog. and, And that's one of the things that makes it so interesting.
0: Yeah. When you put it that way, it made me think, and I'm sure you've thought of this too, that that might make the animals there... Better suited for kind of a post Chicxulub impactor <laughs> environment because it's, you know, dark, it's colder, all those kinds of things are kind of similar.
1: Yeah, exactly. There has been. I think there's been a bit of speculation in the literature, so so we have to start with the idea that that modern birds got their start in Antarctica, and that's something that we're still trying to figure out. The evidence is um, is at this point tenuous. Um, it's a it's a very intriguing idea, but there's not a lot of fossil evidence to support it yet. But if that can eventually be shown to be the case, you know, if we can say ultimately. That modern birds got their start in Antarctica. It could very well be that they were exapted for conditions in the post-Chicxulub world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, already having to deal with months of darkness and and relative cold. You know, compared to animals living living elsewhere in the world. So, uh, so the idea that modern birds got their start in Antarctica doesn't seem quite so far fetched when you um, when you look at it in that light.
0: Yeah, it seems to make sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. But first, we've got to establish. <laughs> <first> <laughs> Before we can even, you know, before I want to go out on that speculative limb, um, you know, we, we have to establish where modern birds got their start. And right now it looks like Antarctica, which would, you know, be consistent with this idea that that um, it was this particular bird lineage that made it because they were already adapted for these sorts of, of you know, kind of crummy conditions. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, you know, but before we can we can make that case, we first have to, you know, bolster the fossil record of Antarctica quite a bit more than it is now. and uh, And that's why we go down there.
0: Yeah, for sure.
3: So I guess on that note, can you tell us about the Antarctic Peninsula Paleontology Project?
1: Yeah, so the Antarctic Peninsula Paleontology Project, or AP3, as we call ourselves, because it (laughs) takes a long time to say Antarctic (laughs) Peninsula Paleontology. I don't know how many syllables that is, but it's a lot. Um, uh, The AP3 is... But basically what we call ourselves. It's the team of researchers that, that we've put together over the years that's studying the end of the age of dinosaurs and the beginning of the age of mammals in Antarctica. So the time before, during, and after the the Cretaceous paleogene mass extinction. And, you know, our field area is is predominantly the James Ross Basin, of the Northern Antarctic Peninsula. So we're a team of, of multiple specialties. We have dinosaur paleontologists, we have fossil bird experts, we have fossil fish experts, fossil mammal experts, fossil plant experts, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, geologists um, of, of different stripes, but primarily um, sedimentologists and stratigraphers. So these are people that are uh, trained in establishing the ages of rocks, um, the depositional environments of rocks. So, in other words, what they can tell us about the environments, the the animals and plants we're living in. Um, and we go down there, and we, you know, we collect as much data as we can. We first and foremost are interested in in fossils of vertebrates, of backboned animals, but we also collect invertebrates. Sometimes we collect abundant geological data to try to answer questions about the uh, about the environment, the age of the rocks, things like this. Mm-hmm. And so in short we assembled the team we assembled because we recognize that it's a rare opportunity to get to go down there and so when we're when we're fortunate enough to be able to do so we want to you know milk those rocks for all their worth so to speak <laughs> Um, you know, and, and and learn as much as we can about the environment, about the climate, about the animals and plants that were living there. And our, our holy grails are, um, you know, our first and foremost terrestrial vertebrates. So in other words, vertebrates that were living on land, they're extraordinarily rare from these rocks in Antarctica. As I mentioned before, a few dinosaurs have been found. Um, we found we found bits and pieces of dinosaurs in the, in the past. And again, dating back to the 1980s, um, people have discovered, you know, fragmentary skeletons or fragmentary bones of dinosaurs in these rocks. Our biggest sort of Holy Grail is to find the first mammals from the age of dinosaurs in Antarctica, um, which we we haven't done yet, but we would really like to. We think that that would be a a pretty interesting revelation and a very exciting thing to find. The reason why fossils of land living animals are so rare in these rocks is that these rocks were deposited at the bottom of a shallow ocean. Um, so anytime you find a dinosaur, you know, whether it's a, a predatory theropod or an armored ankylosaur or whatever it might be, uh, these are presumably animals that were living on on nearby land, you know, who died on land or died in in a river flowing across land and were washed out to sea. So you can imagine, you know, I I I'm here in Pittsburgh and I, you know, I've I've been to the Atlantic coast lots of times. You can imagine that you know, something like a deer dies in a river and gets washed out to sea, probably reasonably frequently. But from there, you know, the chances of it becoming fossilized are so infinitesimally small mm-hmm. that... um the odds are really against us in, in terms of finding land-living animal fossils in, in these rocks that were deposited in a shallow ocean. So whenever we find any bones of dinosaurs, of non-avian dinosaurs, um, it's cause for massive celebration. Um, your you know, needle in a haystack would be a decent analogy. <laughs> So, so the, you know, so we're we're looking as hard as we can to find fossils of land living animals that lived in Antarctica at the end of the age of dinosaurs. But predominantly, we find fossils of sea creatures, as you might expect if you're looking in rocks that were deposited in an ocean. Mm-hmm. So we find lots and lots and lots of invertebrates. You know, things like ammonites and nautiloids and clams. We find uh, a fair bit of plants, um, especially fossil wood. Fossil wood seems to, you know, as you guys know, fossil wood float or wood floats pretty well. And so um, fossil wood does not float, Um, (laughs) but wood floats and and therefore can get washed out to sea and and buried um, with some frequency. And so we we find lots of fossil wood, uh, lots of invertebrates, um, leaves from time to time, lots and lots of marine vertebrates. So fishes um, and giant marine reptiles like plesiosaurs and mosasaurs. Mm -hmm. But only very, very rarely do we find fossils of, of non-avian dinosaurs. In other words, land-living dinosaurs. It's, um, it's important to note in that context that the bird fossils that, that have been found, that we find and that other people have found, are, are all seemingly belong to birds that had a, an aquatic inclination of some variety so Vegavis is a duck-like bird for instance and there's another bird um, nobody knows what it what it is really um, it was described as a as a, lo- a relative of loons believe mm-hmm. it or not <laughs> it doesn't seem to be but ecologically it's very it's comparable so it probably was also a, an aquatic bird incidentally it has the very creative name of polar ornis <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> nice. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's um, yeah, a precise if not too imaginative name.
3: <laughs> which um, uh, so which bits have you found of the non avian dinosaurs?
1: So let's see. In 2011, we found a few fragments, including a toe bone of uh, what seems to be an ornithopod dinosaur. Which is um, ornithopods are the group that includes. Everything from, you know, small bipedal plant eaters, things like Dryosaurus and Hypsilophodon, to big, you know, um, semi-quadrupedal um, sort of Cretaceous cattle, things like Iguanodon <laughs> hadrosaurs. Um, so duckbill dinosaurs, um, Hadrosaurids, hadrosaurs, uh, duckbills is the common name for, you know, for Hadrosaurids. Mm-hmm. So the fossils we found are those of a smaller ornithopod, probably between maybe three to five meters in length. Interestingly, they were found virtually on top of where, um, in the late 1990s, uh, a couple of Argentine geologists found a hind leg of an ornithopod um, uh, on a a place called the Nays on, on James Ross Island. And so, given the rarity of... You know, of fossils of non-avian dinosaurs in these rocks. The fact that our team went back there in 2011 found more bones that are consistent in size and anatomy with these bones that were found in the 1990s. We think we probably have more of the same individual dinosaur that that the um, you know that these Argentine geologists found in the 90s. Cool. Um, that that dinosaur was named Morosaurus, um So M-O-R-R-O-Saurus mm-hmm. uh, in. 2016, um, and so we have a few bits and pieces that may go with that. And then similarly, and um, also in 2011, we went back to a site that had yielded a non-avian theropod, in other words, a um, you know a, that that's the the name we use for for theropods other than birds. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a classic theropod, so to speak, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, an old school theropod. You know. <laughs> Uh, that had been found in 2003 by my by my colleague Judd Case, who's now part of the AP3, part of my team, and. They went back, you know. So Jud and his team in 2003 had scoured the surface of these of these rocks, but you know, no matter wh- how careful you are, almost all the time you're not going to get every single little bit bit and piece of a you know of a fossil that's there, or a skeleton that's there. Mm-hmm. So we went back and just sort of on a hunch, you know, or on a whim, kind of decided to see if we could find any more of this theropod. And and in 2011 we did. We found uh, a tooth and a few other fragments. Then we went back in 2016 and found a few more, including the. Tip of one of its claws. So this is a this is a really uh, exciting animal. It's um, this skeleton, which is under study by by Judd and his student Ricardo Ely and and myself and a few other people. This is the most complete non-avian theropod from the Cretaceous period in Antarctica. You know, so for an entire eighty million year chunk of <laughs> Earth history, this is the most complete. You know, one of these <laughs> for an entire. <laughs> and in this case Antarctica so it's pretty exciting it's um unfortunately um you know as judd will i'm sure agree you know, we we wish that we had gotten there, or that he and his team had gotten there, maybe a, you know fifty years beforehand or something, <laughs> because the thing was pretty beaten up by by freeze thaw action. Um, that's one of the one of the joys of working in our in Antarctica mm-hmm. is that the is, is that nature gets to the fossils before you do most of the time. And uh, you know, in that case, you know, in some places that's not that big of a deal, but in Antarctica where you know temperatures get so cold, and you know, and then above freezing in the summertime. Uh, that means that fossils exposed on the surface often are subject to having water infiltrate them. Water freezes, blows apart the bone, and, you know, breaks it into little tiny bits. So this poor theropod, um, you know, definitely looked looked a lot better. Um, well, it, it probably looked a lot better about a thousand years ago, and definitely looked <laughs> a lot better about 71 million years ago. When it was but um, The parts we have are, um, we have parts of the face, so including, jaw, you know, pieces of jaws and teeth, um, parts of the tail, parts of the hind legs. So we we've actually got a fairly diverse representation of different parts of the skeleton in this animal. So we're we're excited for its um its formal description and um and what it might tell us about the species to which it belonged and ultimately maybe about the affinities, the biogeographic affinities of the dinosaurs in Antarctica or at least that particular dinosaur in Antarctica at the end of the age of dinosaurs. Um, so you know, for instance, um, depending on what it Uh, what animals it turns out to be related to, it might imply connections with different Southern Hemisphere landmasses. So let's, you know, hypothetically say it belongs to an animal. Um, I mentioned Carnotaurus before. Carnotaurus is this, you know, freaky short-faced (laughs) horned theropod Mm -hmm. that belongs to a group called the abelosaurs. Um, and if this animal, um, there's a group of abelosaurs that seems to have been endemic to South America at the end of the age of dinosaurs, at the end of the Cretaceous, uh, if this animal could be hypothetically, and I'm not saying it is, but hypothetically shown to be, shown to belong to this group of abelosaurs, that would imply maybe that there was some kind of, you know, say land connection between South America and Antarctica uh, at the end of the
0: Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. Cool. Or that they could fly.
1: Or that they could fly, yeah, with those little tiny arms, yeah. I um, this is a side note, obviously, but um, abelisaurid forelimbs have always intrigued me quite a bit because um, well, just because you know, at least you know, so T Rex gets made fun of all the time for having short arms, you know. You guys seen the memes and stuff Mm -hmm. like T Rex make a bed and hates push-ups like <laughs> things um you know at least t-rex makes a little bit of sense you know mm-hmm. it's the arms are reduced and the and the hand is reduced as well it's you know got it's down to two functional fingers which yeah. you know is sort of a hallmark of an evolutionary structure that may be on its way out abelisaurids are super bizarre because their forelimbs are even more reduced than than tyran- those of tyrannosaurids and yet the humerus the upper arm bone retains this big massive ball on it that mm-hmm. shows that the really significant range of motion and also there are four fingers left on the hand yeah they don't do anything as far as we know but um, but they're there they're like these little stumpy useless things or seemingly useless things but you know on on a when you take a second look at them it's clear that they were doing something with them um, yeah. and what you know lord knows what that might be but um but they're you know it's just a really interesting thing i think um again a swords for me are the sort of the poster children of of you know gondwanan dinosaur weirdness and and in a lot of ways are the reason why i why i chose to do what i do like to you know chose to focus on the southern
0: hemisphere cool
3: pretty good reason yeah yeah
1: i like weird stuff
0: (laughs) so that new one you found is definitely not a cryolophosaurus
1: um, no, no, no. It's definitely not cryolophosaurus, and, and the reason I can tell you that is um, al- although we, you know, we don't have as much of it as we would like and, and we haven't completed our study of it yet, the bones we do have are, are not consistent with that animal, and I think even more, um, maybe more damningly for the for the idea of it belonging to Cryolophosaurus, mm-hmm. Cryolophosaurus um, is the most complete theropod known from Antarctica, but it's 190 million years old. Mm-hmm. Um, this animal is about 70. Um, so you're talking a difference of 120 million years. <laughs> the animal that we have is closer in time to you and I than it is to Cryolophosaurus by yeah. a wide. <laughs> so um, that's the other you know wonderful thing about Antarctica. Is that there's really just the beginnings of two dinosaur faunas—one from the beginning of the age of dinosaurs, about 190 million years ago in the early Jurassic, um, not quite the beginning of the age of dinosaurs, but you get my point—and mm-hmm. um, and one from almost the very end in the late Cretaceous, with a massive 120 million-year gulf in between them. <laughs> so who knows what you know what what animals? I mean, the little. Bit, the little taste we have of Antarctic dinosaurs from the Cryolophosaurus locality um, in the early Jurassic. And the, um, and the James Ross basin at the end of the Cretaceous, you know, the, the little taste we have suggests that Antarctica was, was home to its own unique dinosaurs during both of those time periods. So who's to say what kinds of animals were populating Antarctica in, in other time periods? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, we've really, and it's, you know, and a, again, a, a cliche to say, we've literally just scratched the surface as to what was living there. And that's one of the many reasons why it's so much fun to work there.
3: Cool. Yeah. I hope you find something really strange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I
1: hope so too. <laughs> yeah, no, we, Um. you know, again, I'm a dinosaur paleontologist specifically, and, you know, I know a, something about fossil birds, but Julia Clark and Pat O'Connor are real experts on, on the on the AP3 there. Um, you know, I'm, every time we go down there, I'm like, I'm like, guys, this is going to be the year when we find a good dinosaur skeleton. And, and they're all, yeah, I keep dreaming, but... Um, <laughs> I'll settle for even an unweird dinosaur, um, you know, if it comes to Antarctica, because chances are it's going to teach us something about you know, what was living there and, and um, how the dinosaurs there were related to those from other land masses. Yeah.
3: Totally. When's your next trip planned, do you know?
1: You know, good question. So our, um, our grant uh, that supported the 2016 expedition uh, is about to expire. It actually expires at the end of this year. So if we're fortunate enough to get funded again, we'll be back in 2020. But unfortunately, we don't know for sure whether we'll get funded again. It's just the, the nature of the beast when you do uh, fieldwork in, you know, in areas that, are, that take a lot of time and money to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, they so require, you know, they require a lot of funding to make them happen. And um, if we're fortunate enough to get funded, then then we'll be back. Um, if not, we'll we'll probably try. The, we'll we'll try to get funded until we do.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I hope you do. Yeah,
1: well, very much. Appreciate that. Yeah, no, we, um, we feel like we've got a decent chance. We've, um, we've made some decent discoveries so far. Um, we've got a, a few things that I, I had to keep secret for the time being um, due to, you know, media embargoes and that kind of stuff. But sure. um, we, have, we have a few sort of aces in the hole, so to speak, that I think will be reasonably big news when they're published. Uh, and also, you know, so we've we've had productive seasons down there. We've proven that we can find stuff down there. But we also have just an absolutely amazing team um, assembled to work, uh, you know, work on, on this Ancient ecosystem down there, you know. Again, extending from you know fossil fish experts to fossil mammal experts to geologists that can tell us about the environments um, that these animals and plants were living in. So, um, I I feel like the the team is just absolutely stellar and and you know filled with with people who are leaders in their respective you know sort of sub-disciplines of paleontology. So I feel like I feel like we've assembled a really strong team for this.
3: That's great. So one last question. Where can people who are interested in learning more about you and your work go? Like, what do you have any websites you'd recommend? Or
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I I'm going to go out on a limb and recommend our own website. <laughs> the, <laughs> our our website is AntarcticDinos.org. dot um, org. The I, that's you know obviously pretty easy to remember, but you have to remember to include that that c that extra c in Antarctica that sometimes people forget. <laughs> um, and our Twitter handle is at Antarctic Dinos. And uh, we have not been very good about updating, <laughs> updating our Twitter lately. But um, thankfully, I have a postdoctoral fellow, Abigail West, who um, has taken, taken up that mantle to some degree. Because you no know, offense to Abby if she's going to listen to this, but uh, she has a little bit more time than I do. <laughs>
3: <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. We had a really great time.
0: Yeah, thank
1: oh, you. It's really my pleasure. Uh, thank you guys for your interest in our work.
0: Thanks again, Matt. It was really fun talking about all the different aspects of doing research in Antarctica and what kind of dinosaurs are around there.
3: Yeah, we had a lot of fun. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu
2: podcast. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.
3: And now, into our dinosaur of the day, Appalachiosaurus, which was a request from Damien via Facebook, so thanks. It was a Tyrannosauroid that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Alabama in the US, and its name means Appalachian lizard.
0: didn't go with Saurus.
3: i guess not (laughs) doesn't have quite the same ring to it i guess
0: i think it would sound pretty cool but yeah
3: well it was named after the region in the u.s appalachia which is the same name as the island continent where appalachiosaurus lived so i guess there's more tying in there
0: yeah i guess
3: (laughs) But it, there's only one species, the Appalachiosaurus montgomeriensis, and the species name is for Montgomery County in Alabama. So.
0: Got a little bit of Alabamasaurus-ishness Yeah, going.
3: ish. <laughs> <laughs> it's the most well-known theropod from eastern North America. Before Appalachiosaurus was found, the only other tyrannosaur found in the eastern part of the U.S. was Driftosaurus, which is less derived than Appalachiosaurus.
0: Is it really the most well-known theropod from eastern North America? There must not be very many theropods from eastern North America then.
3: I don't think there's that many dinosaurs found in eastern North America.
0: Well, you got a lot of hadrosaurs. There's all that stuff in New Jersey and stuff.
3: Yeah, hadrosaurs. They're everywhere. I guess so. Those cows. (laughs) (laughs) So David King found the fossils back in July 1982 and the fossils were found in central Alabama, specifically Demopolis chalk formation. And it was named in two thousand five by Thomas Carr, Thomas Williamson, and David Schwimmer.
0: David Schwimmer? Yes. Is Not that a different David actor. Schwimmer? Okay.
3: I don't think. You can check with him.
0: <laughs> because he was a paleontologist on that show.
3: Oh, that's a good point. No, then they would just say Ross.
0: Oh, uh, I suppose so. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> only a juvenile has been found so far, and of that, only partial remains have been found. So parts of the skull, some vertebrae, parts of the pelvis, most of the hind limbs. The fossils are now at the McWayne Science Center in Birmingham, Alabama. The juvenile was over 23 feet or 7 meters long and weighed 1,300 pounds or 600 kilograms. As you can imagine, Appalachiosaurus was a bipedal predator. It had a very similar skeleton to Albertosaurus, though a comparison found that Albertosaurus had a stronger bite force, and the two would have filled different ecological niches. It also had six low crest lines on the top of its snout, maybe for ornamentation, and that's also seen in Allioramus, an Asian tyrannosaurid. It's not clear what its forelimbs looked like, though most large tyrannosaurids had small forelimbs with only two digits on each hand, so maybe it was like that. And Dinosuchus tooth marks were found on Appalachiosaurus, And there are signs of healing. There's two tail vertebrae that were fused together. And that's possibly because of new bone growth after the injury. Oof. So, sounds like a nasty fight.
0: Got chomped on. Mm Mm-hmm. And our fun fact of the day is sort of an expansion on last week's fun fact. Last week, I mentioned that Ornithischians evolved quadrupedality or four-leggedness at least three times with ceratopsians, thyreophorans, which includes ankylosaurs and stegosaurs and hadrosauriforms. And everybody knows what a hadrosaur is, duck-billed guys. But this week I want to talk about why they developed quadrupedality. So there are a few different theories of it. One is that it might have been because their heads got really big so in the case of ceratopsians, for instance, if you put a triceratops head on a bipedal ceratopsian, it would have fallen forward because it wouldn't have been able to hold up its head. The center of gravity shifts so far forward. So in the ceratopsian case, it might have been just to you know, balance out that huge head. On the other hand, there is a huge difference in diet between quadrupedal herbivores and bipedal carnivores. And because of all this extra fiber in herbivorous diets, they needed a much larger gut in order to digest their food. And that might mean that they turned their body into a, quote unquote, efficient fermentation chamber, as Paul Barrett and others say in a paper about quadrupedality.
3: Yum. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And it might have also helped being so close to the ground if they were eating, you know, Things that were on the ground. So your posture might affect it too. Plus, maybe they weren't running so much anymore because they didn't have to catch prey. But it's hard to say because it's really hard to test this kind of thing in a lab. (laughs) How things evolve and why.
3: Yeah. As they usually say, you need more fossils. True. (laughs) (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to... Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you want to join our growing community on Patreon, check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time.